Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with friends and I have a wonderful friend, wonderful human being with me today. I'm delighted to introduce Dominic Thompson, who is a vegan activist like myself. He's also a badass, like weightlifter, power player. He's been in the corporate world. He's got a very interesting history. Um, without further ado, let me introduce Dominic. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me. And more importantly, to the listeners listening right now, thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us. Yeah. So um, first of all, we met a few years ago. I was at an event that my dear friend Enola had organized in New York City, and that's where we met. I sat next to you and I was just mesmerized. I was like, I'd heard you speak on stage. Um, I had not heard of you before then, which I'm surprised because I do follow so many. Uh, but I also am not that I wasn't that much into social media until more recently. Um, sure. But once I found you, I've like just stalked you and I loved talking to you at the table. And I've always wanted to just um, do something with you because you're such an inspiring person. I know that's like such a cheesy thing to say, but uh, what I was I was most mesmerized about. There's so many things, but uh, that you really you check a lot of boxes for the vegan community, like a male. Like there's a lot of activists that are females. There's there's of course many more males now, but I think when we think of like loving, you know, compassion and stuff like that, typically women have been at the forefront of a lot of those, uh, at least from a from a optics point of view. And to have more men that are showing compassion and strength is just incredible. And then you're black, black male athlete. I, then I found out in that amazing talk that you get that you were in jail. And that's really where you came to this epiphany about how it, it is to be treated. Can you talk through that experience? Uh, because I think that was just that that was just mind blowing to me. Yeah, I I'm originally from Chicago. Anyone listening know 
that Chicago has some very um, problematic areas and and I'm from the west side of Chicago. Um, that's where I'm from, born and raised, and I come from very humble beginnings. Uh, I come from a very poor uh, and violent background. I seen my first murder at the age of five, just to give you an idea of some of the experiences um, I've been through and as well as some things that I've seen growing up at a very uh, young age. And that kind of transformed me into uh, something that in hindsight, you know, was not the best path to go down, but I needed to go down that path to become and to evolve to who I became. There's some things that you have to do to survive and, and to thrive. Um, certain environments shape who you truly are and who you are going to become. And I come from a single parent home um, and the situation that I was in end up landing me uh, in jail. Um, I'm a former gang member uh, and also sold drugs. So I went to jail for selling drugs. And it was there, that was my first time ever being incarcerated and it was my last time ever being incarcerated. But that situation really put me in a place what I define as hitting rock bottom. Uh, anytime a human being has truly rock bottom, that there's only one way you can go. There's only one type of movement you can do, and that's to go forward. I, I couldn't go any further than when I was when I was incarcerated. And it was there in that first week of incarceration. Uh, I, it was in my jail cell. I got on my knees. I opened up my mind and my soul. Uh, and raise my vibrations to connect my energy to the universe and just to ask questions. You know, I communicated to, you know, this powerful source of energy. You know, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, uh, but I definitely do believe in uh, stronger and more divine and higher energy. Uh, if you want to define it as the universe or you want to define it as God or Allah or any other type of belief, that's fine. And we can always talk about my reasoning for not defining it because I don't have an ego and I feel like humans truly don't have a true definite answer on the truth of who we are in all creations. That's just definitely, and if anyone that says they do, they have a very, uh, they have an ego and they're also can be very selfish. And to me, there's truly no monopoly on the truth. Uh, so I open up my energy and everything pointed to this memory when I was a kid. It's, it's weird. This memory just came into my thoughts. Uh, when I was eight years old, my mother was feeding me chicken wings. And I was looking at these chicken wings and I was looking back at her and I looked at these chicken wings. And I have always been a very fickle eater, like a very, I was that kid. Before, you probably see videos now that go viral when the kid's like, I'm not eating that. That comes from animals. I was that kid. <laughs> before social media. But I looked at those wings and looked at my arms and I looked at my mom and I looked back at those wings and looked at my arms and I said, I don't want it. And she was like, why? And I was like, well, they're, they're little bitty arms, you know, and I don't want it. And it took her off guard. You know, it took her off guard. And it's kind of hard to tell a struggling single black mother uh, working two jobs, you're not going to eat what she can afford to buy. <laughs> and she gave me that look, but I'm, I'm truly a product of my mother. My mother's from 
a timeline of civil rights and more. She's very uh, vocal. She's every bit of alpha female you can ever meet. Uh, and that's, I'm a chip off the block. And she told me to always speak my mind, including to her. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to eat. And she eventually compromised and she uh, <laughs> went out to the store to buy me fish sticks. And I, I grew up eating a lot of fish sticks, if I'm being honest with you, a lot of products that was not attached to or, or meat-based products that was not attached to the bone structure because the bone structure was something that I had always had a problem with when I looked at meat and I didn't like it. And that memory was in my thoughts right there in my jail cell that first week in jail. And then I, I just like a light bulb went off and I, I got it. You know, I got it. And I created this mantra for myself that if it requires harm, then no. I didn't want to have anything to do with anything that destroyed any type of energy. What are we talking about? Animals or destroying humans. That includes going back into the community to sell drugs. And I was young when I got indicted. I was getting ready to finish college and I was done and I was retired from the streets. Uh, I was well on my way. I had my first position in corporate America working in healthcare, an entry level position. And I got handed that, indi that indictment uh, from some, some, um, some things that caught up pretty much with me. Um, and I denounced it. I did like a hard reset. And I realized at that moment that I just no longer want to contribute to any type of negative energy, including what's happening in animal agriculture to the 50 billion plus animals being destroyed every single year. We didn't have documentaries at that time. We didn't have books at that time. We certainly didn't have social media at that time. But I was a little bit ahead of my time and I knew it wasn't right. And I felt like this was karma removing me from society to have a sit out time to really get my shit together, to really understand what is happening in, in this world and to understand what I need to do in this path. So I kind of made a pact and a promise with the universe and myself to do everything I could to never do harm again. And I never looked back. That was 19 years ago. And here I am. Wow. So we became vegan around the same time. Well, plant. Well, so then um, we, back then, vegetarianism and veganism was in a great kind of the same. So mm -hmm. I removed, and this was in jail. I was not eating meat in jail. I removed my meat uh, off my plate and I would give all my meat to my cellies. Uh, in, in exchange for their carbs. So I would eat a lot of carbs. and But those carbs sometimes would probably contain dairy and stuff like that because I didn't know about the dairy industry. All, and I was ignorant to that because, again, I didn't have resources. It's not like I grew up in a household knowing, yeah, dairy is just as bad as the meat industry. So my introduction was vegetarianism uh, in prison. Uh, and then well, I, was gonna, I, I would assume that your choices there are probably limited anyway. It's kind of like, here's the yeah. food and... It's not like your mom who went out and tried to get you something else. I imagine that exactly. there's probably... <laughs> yeah, it's not a, a menu for vegans. Like, hey, you want to eat this garden here or this Beyond yeah. Meat? Yeah, it's none of that happening. Let <laughs> yeah, me make you a vegetarian burrito, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We got you. It's okay. No, you're going to eat what you can. And that includes a lot of pasta, a lot of oatmeal, uh, a lot of potatoes, and a lot of bread and gluten. Uh, very minimal vegetables, you know, very, which is funny uh, how I was able to kind of re-engineer my body. My body just 
transform from this new diet with very little little sources of uh, nutrients based on whole foods specifically, which is very interesting. But as you know, what a lot of people may not know that's listening, protein, and even in your most refined foods, can be found there. You know, biologically speaking, protein is in everything we consume, even your most boxed processed foods. And I was able to survive and be even thrive and become strong as hell on a carb-based, high-carb-based, uh, uh, plant-based diet in prison. So it was there not only that you started eating this way, but did you start your um, the body yeah. building and, and well, all, I, I wanted to find it as body or body shaping, I wanted to say, just you know, <laughs> dedication to being strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I started evolving and transform for sure because... Before, my, my background before prison, I played football. I was a really amazing football player in high school. And then I broke my ankle and uh, also wrestled and I also weight trained. I had my first introduction to weights when I was in fifth grade. So I have 30 years of experience of weight training and hitting heavy iron. But during that timeline when I was indicted and that area within two to three years, I was not active. And I have picked up some weight, extra weight, just from living that fast life. And when I went into prison, I was about 260 pounds. You know, I was close to 260. And within a month to two months, I dropped all the way down to like 190, you know, a, a weight. All that weight, all that inflammation was just removed. <laughs> and I dropped this weight while also, you know, hitting the weight pile uh, on the yard, what we call the yard, working out um, and even doing a lot of push-ups in my cell and more and just staying active because that's, there's only so much you can do in there. There's only so much reading you can do in there. There's only so much writing you can do in there. I wasn't getting, I didn't have people writing me at all, you know, which, by the way, anyone listening, if you have a loved one in prison, please do write them. You, that, I can't tell you enough, getting your name called out at roll call when you have a letter coming from somebody, it's, it's uh, it kind of makes your eyes water, you know, it kind of, it makes you know that they didn't forget about you, because sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind, you forget that you have a loved one in there. It's, but it's definitely like a, a source of energy to receive that. Uh, so, you know, uh, besides from that, though, I just spent a lot of time just really focusing on just keeping myself busy and training. And yeah, my body evolved and I became one of the top 10 strongest guys in there, uh, in the prison system, in a population of over like 1,200 inmates because we will have what's called liftoffs and I was one of the strongest. Wow. So it sounds like almost you had this, I mean, you really did. Like you said, you had this complete turnaround in every way, spiritually, physically. How did you then transform that into coming into like back to life outside of prison? The transition into being a civilian again. Yeah. Yeah. The transition into being a civilian again. It was, um, not going to lie to you, it was challenging. Uh, you know, I was gone for about three years. So 
I was gone for, you know, some calendars. Not, it wasn't an overnight thing. Um, and I remember getting into, getting into like a taxi to, you know, they give you a bus ticket and tell you to report to the halfway house in 48 hours. I, I was in Colorado. That's, I did time at Florence, Colorado. And they gave me a, a, a bus ticket, Greyhound. I was to report, actually not 48 hours. It was 72, I think a little bit like 80 hours. Cause that, that's a nice little ride for a Greyhound. Uh, I was supposed to report to the Greyhound and get to Chicago, to the halfway house. Uh, and if I don't, of course, they'll send marshals for me, right? But it was just, from the moment I left out of there, it, it was just like a, a breath of fresh air. It was just like, wow. You know, it was, it made me realize just how incredibly uh, life, how short life is, as well as uh, how we live in a very oppressing system where laws and other uh, things are put in place to really cripple so many people of color in a lot of different ways, a lot of different challenges from the, the original, what they call the crack laws and drug laws um, have, are definitely racially biased in a lot of different ways. But without going into details in that scenario, I was just happy at that moment, but also for the first time in my life, I was very unsure of my future. I have always been an optimistic guy. I have always been sure of myself uh, and confident and always believed in karma. That's why I respected the fact that I had to sit in time out. You know, I, I understand how to pay my dues. I knew that with my chin up high, took full responsibility. Sure, the laws was not in my favor, even the way the case happened without me going into details in the case. But I, and it was definitely not a fair situation, but I'm still at the end of the day a stand-up dude. I'm going to take it to the chin and take responsibility. And that's what I did. But coming out of that, I was just so happy, but also unsure. And I remember even being in a car on my way to the halfway house, uh, just hearing the music on the radio to even seeing cars going by. I was nauseous because I haven't seen cars in so long. Uh, my head was spinning and it, I was nervous about, not about fucking up, but again, how I'm going to provide for myself. What am I going to do? I didn't have a support system to come home. My mom didn't have, I wasn't coming home to a family that was, had money or nothing like that. My family was very poor. <laughs> uh, and, and I didn't know what I was going to do about work and, and more. And I was just depressed. Uh, so it was an interesting transition and very scary moment that changed for me I want to say within like two months all because what you guys if you start following me or you start following me now there is a very interesting four-legged furball <laughs> that is on my Instagram she was definitely a very critical piece to helping me transition into who I am today um, and her name is Solka. That's her government name, but her superhero name is Scruff McFly. It's my fur daughter. <laughs> she truly um, showed me how to love again and really took me from feeling like I was depressed to 
realizing that I got this, I can overcome this fear and, and own who I am, that old Dominic, but without the illegal activity. And that's what happened. So yeah, it was a very interesting period. And how did this beautiful ups come into your life? Mm-hmm. So I was in a halfway house and I finally had a chance to move out of the halfway house uh, uh, because I I was able to get back into working um, and I had a position and I found my, well, I got, I, I went into my first apartment out of the halfway house and, but I was also on house arrest. Uh, so my sentence was basically like a 10 year sentence, five years hard, got two years off. And then I had five years of house arrest. I had a curfew. I can only leave the house at like 6 a.m. But I was, I was due to report back home around 6 p.m. Uh, from what I can recall, it was either 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. And I was only allowed to go to work. And back then, again, we didn't have social media. We didn't have uh, Netflix. We didn't have, only thing we had was like blockbuster video. We didn't have anything. I couldn't even go to the gym. I was, it was work and come home to my apartment. And, and I would do that because I was so happy just to have a job, but I couldn't do anything with my free time, you know, uh, but be at home because they would call my vocal. They would call my, call my house phone and check my vocal cords five, six times a night at random times. And I would have to repeat back into this high tech <laughs> CIA type of system uh, that recognized my vocal cords. Um, and if it, if it didn't, the marshals would be at my house within 10 minutes. Uh, that was part of the release papers and all of that. It was like, really, this was, this was advanced shit. I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> yeah, pandemic, yeah. Pandemic is not a big deal. Like you're like, Oh, pandemic ain't, ain't, ain't nothing for me at all. It's, it's, it's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was nothing. So, you know, my mom, uh, she, she got, she got married to uh, her amazing husband, uh, who she's with now, and he's originally. They met at. They used to be colleagues, and uh, uh, he's originally from St. Thomas Island, and they will go down to St. Thomas once or twice a year to see his family. And this year, they they went down there. Um, and, and as you know, there's a lot of stray animals and other puppies running around these islands and more. So she, um, she uh, brought back this fur ball that was just scratching at her feet. That um, she met, uh, who she she basically rescued out of the islands and took from back this little small little fur ball. Um, and my mom's not that animal lover like that far from it she she just too she just my mom's cut tough around the edges you know she's definitely one of the types that believe humans over animals first you know my safety over animals first she's totally opposite than me with respect to her views on certain things um and and so she's from the old school but she brought but she fell in love with this little puppy and the puppy was not integrating well with her husband's dogs who are now her husband had three chihuahuas he came with a package still <laughs> and these chihuahuas as you know chihuahua the breed they're very territorial they're very um, evil in a lot of ways 
Uh, and they were sniffing at her. And this little furball, this little white, brown, gray, and blackish furball couldn't defend herself, rightfully so. She's only size of my two of my fists is put together. And my mom was telling me about it because she would, my mom would kind of like call her and put her in the bed with them. And her husband was being a traditional guy, like, no, she must go down there with her brothers and sisters. Um, you know, and that's the only way they're going to get along. He's like old school. And she's like, don't you see they trying to kill her? No, fool. Like, <laughs> she is not going to be down there in the bed with them because they're not happy about her. Like, she's just, they wasn't getting along. They was, she was squirming because she couldn't even, you know, this, this little dog, this was a legit puppy. Like, this wasn't like some one-year-old, two-year-old puppy. So she told me about it. I was like, hey, give her to me because I'm a my history of dogs, I had three German Shepherds growing up. I raised and I had a pit bull. I had big dogs. I had no idea what type of dog I was getting. But I say, bring it to me. I'm bored. I, I, you know, I got all the time in the world. You know, I get off of work. I was staying in this uh, three-bedroom, big, big, huge apartment. It was in the hood. Don't get me wrong, but it was my apartment. I didn't care, you know, and it was nice inside. Sure, it wasn't pleasant to get to me. <laughs> it was all I could afford, but uh, <laughs> at the time. And she brought her over, knocked on my door, and I looked at my mom. I was like, where she at? She pointed down, and the most beautiful little thing came between my mom's legs and looked up with the most beautiful eyes at me like a Pixar Disney movie and gave me that look like, are you going to be my dad? Cause the, my, like, cause I told my mom I would raise her and give her back. I said, give her to me for like six months till she get bigger. She should not be over there with adult dogs because they're going to try to harm her. And that's just how it really is. She's not a part of their pack yet. Dogs are like that, especially small breed dogs. Only larger breed and older dogs, such as retrievers and huskies, are okay in the sense of being integrated with puppies of the same breed. Um, this was a whole different dynamic, and I picked her up and looked her in the eyes and. And I cracked a smile, and that was the first time my mother seen me smile since in like five years. She never seen me smile after prison. She didn't see me smile, of course, during prison. She didn't see me smile when I was going through my pretrial and indictment. That was a long time, and then she started crying right there, my mom. And me and Soka fell in love, and Soka became my best friend because, unlike, you know, I hear stories that people are really best friends with their dogs. They say that that's my best friend and they take their dog everywhere. And some, some of them are probably right, but I can tell you the bond that I formed with Soka because I had nothing but time on my hand. I didn't have internet assets like that. I didn't have dating apps. I didn't have nothing but me and her. When I would come home, it was all about me and her. We would watch movies together. We would, we would eat snacks together. I would run through my apartment and slide on the floor in my socks. We would get on the floor and wrestle together. She helped heal me in a lot of different ways. And in the same token, I became her best friend. She became my best friend. We was like Bonnie and Clyde, each other's shadows. So I got a chance to really know her. Like I can look at her and know what she's thinking and what she wants, just like she can look at me. And we truly formed a bond that I never had with any other animal or any other dog because I spent, excluding the eight to nine hours, 10 hours outside of that apartment working, I spent my weekends with her and I spent my evenings and mornings with her and we just formed a bond. And that's how I went from being a very broken soul 
um, to who you all know today because of her. You know, one one of the many reasons I adore you is this. I every time you speak of her, I feel like it's the it's the most tender love story. Really, it's so I really I cry every time I see how you speak of her and um, how you write of her on social media. It is just so beautiful, and it I love how you talked of how you know each other, you can communicate, and and that's where we often overlook that just because we don't speak the same language of human talk doesn't mean we can't um, communicate with our animals and, and understand them. And it's, it's so powerful. And um, it's, I just, I, you should write a, I'm sure you'll write something about the two of you um, as a book or something, but it's, it's, she must be a, a real reminder, not that you need it, but reminder in, in your moments of, cause you know, activism, especially all kinds of activism. <laughs> I shouldn't say especially animal activism, but I think all kinds of activism can be exhausting, can be, um, it can be just, she's probably, I was going to say, she's probably your reminder. Actually, she's a little bit of the opposite now. She used to be, that's a good reference point. Like she's tattooed on my bicep. So if I go do any type of training or a race, I'm on a bike, um, like she has been to most of my triathlons before I had a tattoo. I would kiss her for good luck before I jump in the water of a triathlon. Um, but in all honesty, these days in recent years, because she's older now, she just turned 14 last year. She is pretty much the opposite reminder of what I would do with respect to activism. She brings, she grounds me and brings me back to what is also important for me to understand that I have to also take care of us, me and her. It's just me and her. And I, which means I had to take care of myself and take care of her. And she is my sanctuary in a lot of ways. So, you know, she, you know, being around her uh, is really all I need to really re-energize uh, or going out to visit a sanctuary, uh, rescue animals. That That is the reminder of my activism when I go visit sanctuaries. But everyday life, she is basically the reminder like, hey, Dom, it's those people out there, it's only so much you can do. It's so many, so many lives you can say, save. And it's me and you, dad. Let's just not worry about everything because we can't control everything. Yeah. She's your heart for sure. So let's just talk a little bit about your work. Um, Besides activism, you have used your voice and your business sense to make some really powerful business decisions and companies. Can you talk a little bit about Eat what elephants eat, and yeah, and the yeah. adventures you're going forward with. Yeah, I, so my background I used to be an executive in healthcare. I did business development. I pretty much ran multiple markets at one point or the other in healthcare, which involved the states of South South Carolina, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, New York, uh, North Carolina, Florida, and uh, New Jersey. Uh, so my background is is very powerful and strong throughout the Midwest to the East region in terms of my relationship that I built in the healthcare world and, and also helped to solidify and develop contractional relationships between the health system and the BUCAs of the world, which is the payer system as well. My firm and my company pretty much helped develop those patient communities and those assets for the payer system to have access to these communities and also for the 
uh, health system to provide uh, care for those patients that belong to that membership population. So we, I negotiated those contracts, those very complex contracts through many markets. And I applied what I learned. I, you know, I have pretty much close to 20 years of healthcare in me and business. And I apply uh, what I learned from uh, two amazing employer groups I was a part of, which is basically they were at one point or another 800-pound gorillas in that area. They're, they're very, it's almost like going into a Ivy League school. Um, very tough environment, very tough employer group with amazing people doing amazing things at the time. Uh, and sure, I can talk about the shitty aspect of it with respect to how we historically went from calling a patient a patient to a consumer. And, but that's a whole different, different talk. <laughs> but, and that's one of the reasons why I got out of it because we was no longer doing things that align with my beliefs. Um, and so... I want to say 10 years ago, nine years ago, around the start of Instagram, I was the one of the first users of Instagram. A buddy of mine called me up and he was like, hey, you know, you're always talking about how we should eat healthier, eat plant-based, and you're always on me and everybody else. You know about leaving animals alone. You should get on this cool new app that all these cool kids are on. I was like, what app is that? And he was like, it's called Instagram. And I was like, huh. And I looked the app up and I downloaded it. And when I went on the app, I seen all these people just taking selfies. <laughs> it was just full of selfies and more. And honestly, it didn't jive with me. It just wasn't me. I mean, I, that was, it, I felt like it was for younger people. I, at the time, was probably 32. Uh, and I felt like this was more for people who are in in their, their low twenties. And I already had a career ahead of me because, which is, I was very happy that I had a second chance. And here I am a person that had a felony and working in healthcare and climbed as hard as I could to uh, get to where I was at in healthcare. And I did hit a ceiling. It's only so much I could have kept climbing, especially at the employer group I was involved in, all the C-suite and even those right under the C-suite was just pretty much predominantly white males. Um, it's a good old boy network. Uh, so I didn't really get a chance to have that opportunity to break through like I wanted to. But I downloaded this app and it, it just didn't speak to me. But the old creative side of me, that old Dom that grew up taking two to three years of architecture in high school and I'm a natural drawer. I'm very creative with my hands. I can draw things. And I just kind of like thought about it and I thought, how can I use this to communicate to the world about what I believe in? Last thing on my mind was trying to become a popular person. You know, I, I don't even think people that was using Instagram at the time was trying to, I don't think none of us, the early users, cared about your following and cared about being popular or what was happening. There was no strategy. It was just like, hey, instant photo, bam. You keep it moving or you say what you have to say. It wasn't really uh, what it is, as you guys know today. But I'll say, you know, let me just post my workouts. This is going to be a place I could dump my photos and let me talk about what I eat. And also let me put in the caption, 
how important it is to pay attention to animal agriculture and more. So I was very early on with my captions. And I kid you not, I started doing that and it just blew up like overnight organically because back then when you thought of what a vegan male was, you only had two types. Both of them was white men. Um, one was either middle age or and into endurance sports like Rich Roll. I was basically the anti-Rich Roll, okay? I'm just, and me and Rich are cool. Okay, he knows it. I tell him, I tell him that all the time when I see him. I was the anti-Rich Roll. In fact, me and Rich Roll came out around the exact same time. He came out, they had a big article on him in one of those fitness magazines. And, and so you had the Rich Roll types. Uh, and then you had another type uh, that's a young hippie surfer board dude that let's go hold hands and smoke weed, man, you know, but both white men. And I was the opposite. I was a man of color. I had size on me. I had a background. I had no filter. I didn't give no absolute fucks of what people thought about me. Um, I said what was on my mind. And more importantly, I was strong as fuck uh, and big and jacked, <laughs> just being honest. And that was a breath of fresh air for the vegan community. And they took that and would tag people and share my photos and more. And my account blew up to the point that I had the largest vegan male account at that time. And I thought, what better way? You fast forward a year later, my platform, and this one, keep in mind, Instagram back then, the engagement was off the hook. You would get like anywhere between 50 to 75% engagement. So if you had 10,000 followers in today's world, that was like, 100,000 followers. And out of those 10,000 followers, at least five to 7,000 was interacting with your, with your account. <laughs> it was very refreshing. There weren't any bots. There weren't any like, yeah, it wasn't like people just went and kind of clicked. It, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. People was just excited about these photos. It was fun. And yeah. it was fun. I wasn't in on that. Unfortunately, I came in like later. <laughs> I wish that's, yeah. Yeah, people get so excited about this. So excited. And my platform took out. I was living in New York at the time. And um, I thought, what better way than to use this platform now to... And at that time, the poaching crisis was at an all-time high. And I thought, what better way to help raise some funding and, and bring some type of awareness to something that I was very passionate about, which was the poaching crisis that was happening to the elephants and, and the rhinos in Africa. So I decided like, you know, let's just run like a t-shirt campaign and let's just try to educate people about what's happening. And I thought like, huh, what can catch someone's eye attention? I looked at all the vegan shirts out there. I, I even, at the time I had a relationship, I still have a relationship with PETA, but PETA reached out to me to do a t-shirt campaign for them. But from PETA to all these other, there was only like one other t-shirt company or two other t-shirt companies at that time. And all the shirts were just driven towards a culture of men and women that I really didn't identify with in terms of, it didn't speak to me. You know, like it was very corny. Okay. I'm from Chicago. I, I, I felt like it, it, I didn't feel good putting on none of those shirts. They don't know me like, like that. And it just, it just didn't represent who I am as a man of color, uh, as, as well as somebody that is more unapologetic about he, how he felt when it comes to what was happening in animal agriculture. So I created my own slogan. 
And I remember I was trying to figure out, like, just let me try to come up with some type of slogan. And I was like, what can I tell them to do? And it's like, well, I'm always telling people just to eat plants. And just always telling people, it's like, listen, elephants are the largest walking vegans, technically. And you can just eat what elephants eat. And then, boom, I was like, oh, eat what elephants eat. Right then and there, that slogan and brand and trademark and everything was born. And I got it printed on a t-shirt and I put it on my very jack torso at the time. <laughs> uh, I was definitely bigger than what you guys see me now. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was like a shrink wrap uh, and put it on my torso and threw my gun up. And that photograph posted on Instagram, it was shared probably over 15,000 times from Instagram to Facebook. We ran out and the shirts just, we sold so many units to the point that Urban Outfitters wanted to license us and people were still in our slogan and trying to do so much with it. And, and it just took off to the point that I said, okay, this is, this is something we on to. And I remember my girlfriend at the time, uh, my ex, here we were living in a New York apartment. I was a busy professional working in healthcare. She was a lawyer, busy. We both busy as fuck. And she was so fucking mad at me. She, she was like, I can't believe it. Cause we didn't think it was going to blow up like it did. But there we were spending our evenings and our weekends packing these orders, just me and her. And even the little ones, the, you know, uh, Soko just looking at us like, really guys, you know, <laughs> this is how we spend our weekends. And, and it was just like, it, it, it took a toll a little bit on our relationship <laughs> at first, but she just couldn't believe the way it took off. And, and then the second t-shirt campaign launched, Clark Kent was vegan. And I, keep in mind, we was popping. I was like a vegan celebrity now, right? I couldn't go nowhere in New York without being recognized. And the company I formed, Crazies and Weirdos, which is the home of all those, those shirts and clothing, was popular. It was popping. And Miley Cyrus reached out to us. And she asked us, like, hey, I'm a big fan. I love you guys' gear. I would love to uh, represent. And, you know, we was like, oh, shit. You know, and it was like, okay, we'll send. We didn't know what she was going to do. We was like, we'll she was like, me and Leanne, her, her, her boyfriend at the time, before they got married and now they're not together, were big fans. And we sent her, she gave us her address in Cali and we mailed it her like a, a, a care kit of, of clothes and, and hats and stuff. And within two weeks, I remember sitting in my apartment, my New York apartment, and my phone just started lighting up like a Christmas tree uh, from notifications from Instagram to text messages and phone calls. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, people's like, oh my God, open up your Instagram. Mighty Cyrus posted you guys. I was like, what are you talking about? She posted a photo of her with a blunt in her mouth, (laughs) middle finger up. And our Clark Kent was vegan hoodie uh, to her 30 million that she had 30, she had 30 million Instagram followers at the time. Mm-hmm. That kind of like, look, and again, we was already a solid startup, small company. And again, I was do what I can. Me and my ex would do what we can to fulfill orders. And we had very limited marketing. It just organically, we were selling without heavy marketing. But that kind of, excuse me, that kind of like solidified us to a point like people's like, oh, they the real deal when she kind of endorsed us. And it was all uphill from there. Like everybody, we had other, so like we have football players, basketball players that was, because I was already having basketball players and other 
elite athletes reaching out to me anyway prior to the Miley Cyrus post. It was like, man, you're Jack. Uh, you know, how do you get your protein and all of that? And I would tell them, you know, and uh, I would talk to some of them. But yeah, we from crazies and weirdos because we was the original vegan clothing company we was again there was only one before one or two before us and we was one of the original one now you have hundreds and hundreds but it was only only five at the time and we was became the one of the largest at the time killing it uh and between what i was doing and activism i was definitely a part of the original core of people that made being vegan cool and hip and even the activism. We didn't have the males that you have today talking about animals. None of those guys that you probably know today, they wasn't around. They wasn't doing nothing. It was me and only a couple other, if that. But I was definitely the most recognized at the time because uh, a lot of the other males, which is a, you know, they teach you this in psychi- psychiatry, but some men are not vulnerable. They don't want to be vulnerable uh, when it comes and talk about these issues because they fear that they won't be viewed as being masculine. And that was, that's what separated me from the rest. I, would, I didn't care. You know, I wanted to speak my mind and I did. And that's what happened. So I applied these years of experience working in corporate America to my own little my company. And I never looked back. I had to run it at full capacity or it was going to fail. I started my second company. Um, and, and so it was a, this is a good problem to have because... What happened shortly after that, from my account growing, I was getting requests to speak. I never asked anybody to speak anywhere. I didn't, it's not like I wanted to say, hey, I want to be the speaker and let me talk about what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> That's just not, again, I did not aspire to be who you guys know me as today. Everything happened organically. And the first people that asked me, the first entity that asked me to speak was NYU. That was the first or first entity in general, university, they, they found me, I guess, some of their students. There was a lot, of NY, a lot of vegans went to NYU. So you got to understand, a lot of universities across America started forming these vegan clubs and all of that. And they would have small budgets and they'll ask like, who you want here and stuff like that. So anyway, NYU reached out to me and I went to go speak on that panel, as you know, I, that's when you and I met about five, that was about seven years ago. I want to say like seven years ago. And uh, it was me, uh, Rich Rowe, Michelle, and David. And it was like over 400 people. And from that point, that is when, um, in fact, I think, I think um, it was more than that. But from that point, my speaking engagements took off. Like it was just word of mouth. So I got booked at other universities. I got booked at vegan festivals. And it just got to the point where I had to do this at full time between the, between the, the company, the clothing company, the speaking engagement and more. And during these talks around the world, people would ask me, Hey man, can you just set up something? Like, I mean, most consumers and most human beings want you to hold their hand and, and show them the way and direct it. And they wanted to go vegan. The good news here is was not only half my audience that was coming to see me at these speaking engagements were vegans, but they would bring their war friends. Um, because again, at that time, there wasn't too many vegan males in the community, let alone that look like I did, you know, that actually can walk the walk and talk the talk far as physically can really do some impressive things. So naturally they wanted to have some type of direction 
or a website where they can go vegan. And I'm the type, there's only so much delegation I would do, but when it comes to something like that, this is, this is around the time I started forming a really close relationship with my followers and my community that I felt like it was my responsibility to make sure they were in good hands and not to push them off just to any vegan website that I have no affiliation with, that I haven't vetted myself, that I don't know who is behind that organization because vegan or not, it's important for you as a decision maker, a leader, an entrepreneur to truly understand where you're sending your customers to or your followers to. And I was very, very strong about that. And I'm a man of integrity. And it's no way I was going to just send them to some organization where it might be shitty leadership or who knows what type of person is the founder or behind that organization. Uh, so, cause I would, if I had a dollar for every DM I would receive about, Hey, can you help me go vegan? Have you go vegan? I would have been a very well off man at the time. So it took me years to finally get it right. And because I didn't have the IT background with respect to coding and trying to create this website because we didn't have the tools like Squarespace or any of these other websites where you can do it yourself. Things back then was still based off of coding and, and other um, just old school from scratch building websites. Um, um, and we didn't have the GoDaddy's of the world, really. I think GoDaddy just came out. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't what it was today where anybody can create a website. And it took me some years. And then I finally was able to create this amazing program. Uh, and I launched my second startup called Eat What Elephants Eat. And I wanted to make it not only accessible, but more importantly, affordable for anybody around the world. And so that was my, my way of... Uh, having a solution because it's only so much talking you can do about the problems. You need to also have some solution when you're going to advocate in this area that we both love. Exactly. Because people will be inspired and almost the first hurdle anyone speaks of is, well, what do I make? Well, what do I eat? You know, they, they know they don't want to eat. They don't want to contribute to the harm, but if it's so ingrained in us, you know, have your meat here, have your two veggies or your starch here. And it's like, you take the meat away and all of a sudden it's like, well, what else is on the plate? And it, you know, it's just, it's, it's reframing everything, but having the, having a toolkit like you provide is, is you're right. It's well, here's the reason why. And here's how, here's how you can do it. And, and it's, and so everybody can find this on your eat what elephants eat website. Yeah, they can go to Eat Well Elephants Eat. We have an amazing team. Um, it's over 3,000 plant-based meals. Just create a profile that takes five minutes. If that, you, get, you tell us what's in your, your kitchen. What, what are your goals? Are you trying to lose weight, gain weight? You tell us what allergies you have. Uh, we create this amazing meal plan and show you how to eat plant-based. Uh, we have advanced programs if you're advanced in the kitchen and we have beginner's programs. And we also have your macro and, and uh, micro nutrient information there, all thanks to our RDs that we have on staff. We have registered dietitians on staff. And you make it so easy, so easy. I mean, it's, it's beautifully, I mean, like the, the coding, the technology part of it is just makes it so easy and, and, uh, and it's affordable. <laughs> yeah, for less than $9 a month, uh, if you pay a year in advance, you have access to over 3,000 plant-based recipes and you get coaching as well. You can call us Monday through Friday or email us or chat with us 
and you get coaching. You get these amazing health coaches. The program is so amazing that Emory University wanted to team up with us uh, to power and support this uni- uh, support this program. Um, but um, if I'm just being honest, and I don't care, um, they did not want to uh, basically um, serve as a true strategic partner 50-50. Mm, yeah, that, that happens. Yeah. And look, this is what you do. You stay, I've been in those situations too, and you just stay true to your goal and, and, um, like that, that place of integrity. Well, we could talk a lot more, but I'd love to just, um, get you to summarize a few things. What are you going to be up to and where, where do you see yourself in the next five years and how can people not only find you, but what, what are your recommendations? Again, you can't handhold just like you can't do that in any kind of activism, but what, what are your recommendations for people? What do you, what do you, where do you feel like we need to be in the next five years? I think in the next five years, so there's two different people that I'm probably talking to now. To the vegans uh, that may be listening, I think it's important for you to understand how important intersectional activism is. I think you need to understand that uh, biologically speaking, humans are animals too. And that means if you see uh, your fellow humans being challenged, targeted, um, or going through some type of sort of oppression and, and more from police brutality and being targeted, and I'm talking specifically when it comes to what's happening now in, in Black America, you have it. You should be responsible and and also uh, take the initiative to uh, step up and fight with your brothers and sisters. Meaning, like activism is just not about defending animals is also about defending human animals in that sense um so i think for those vegans out there that are listening that are thinking about becoming activists or uh those vegans that are already considered themselves activists i really need you guys to understand how incredibly how incredible incredibly important it is to also serve as allies and be very active when it comes to uh, what's happening to, um, like I said, Black America. Uh, that's number one. And number two, um, to those that are non-vegan, you should also kind of apply some of the same roles if you start to transition into this and understand that everything is interconnected. Everything definitely starts in some type of capacity with what you put in your body. And that will also transform your energy and your dolphinness and your, your spiritual well-being. Uh, it's so much amazing things that will happen to you once you completely transform or transition completely plant-based and hopefully you go whole food plant-based. I can tell you this is the best decision we ever make in your life. It's now more easier than ever. This is not what I did 19, 20 years ago. Um, you have so many amazing products that can help you transition uh, into this. If you don't want to go to whole food plant-based route, we have so many amazing things that I would say 95% of what you eat on an American Western diet can be veganized. We have amazing vegan burgers, vegan pizza, vegan ice cream. So if you want to go the junk food way, the comfort way, just to transition, that's okay. It's okay. Um, and then you can always transition to eat even more healthier. Um, I think society will continue to eat healthier. I think in the next five years, you will have more people eating plant-based but I also think in the next five years, like what we're having now with this pandemic, I think this is just a scratch of the surface of things to come. Um, 
I don't think this is the last of what we're going to be experiencing in the next five to 10 years. So um, it starts with what you put on your plate, build your immune system up. And I think once you have your body truly in, in top shape and with respect to your food and nutrition, um, you can definitely fight a better battle if you are become vulnerable to some of these um, uh, threats, uh, these diseases that's happening, that will be happening in the next five to 10 years. Yes, I agree. And I think, like you said, what you put in your body is so much more than the food. It's really the energy and the all the, um, the connections. If you walk it back, how much suffering went into that. So um, I think, yes, we have to dedicate ourselves to full-on commitment and activism against violence, against hatred, and standing up for for everyone, every being. And I just appreciate all the work you do. You inspire me, and I'm so grateful to have you here. We'll have to have you back. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm available anytime you want to jump on. I really appreciate you having me on today. And you can find Dominic. He's um, on Instagram. He's got a huge following there. Dominic Thompson, right? You're on by your name there. Yeah, um, you can just type in my name. I'm the only Dominic Thompson that would come up with the largest following for sure. Yeah, yeah. His, his, he'll, he'll, he'll come up right away. <laughs> and then uh, Eat What Elephants Eat is also on Instagram. And go check out that monthly plan or yearly plan. It's incredible. It's incredible. So let's go, people. Let's show up in all the good ways. Thank you for listening today. And as always, I'm pulling for you.